Welcome to another Crowdlinker Fireside Chat. I'm Aram Mukumov, the host. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, on the show, I'm interviewing product innovation leaders who are working on big industry disruptive problems from within their organizations. Um, my guests have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share about building digital uh, products, staying agile, and fostering an innovation mindset and culture. This is season two, uh, episode six, and I'm here today with Aziz Kara to chat about the challenges of transitioning from a large organization to a startup, running user studies, and the future of product management. So we're going to get a lot through today. Currently, Aziz is the head of product at Jiffy. Uh, building the best way to maintain your home. Aziz manages seven digital products there in a vibrant micro marketplace that consists of homeowners on one side and service professionals on the other. Uh, before Jiffy, Aziz uh, held product leadership roles at Loblaws Companies, Limited, Pivotal Labs, Extreme Labs, as well as TELUS. So I'm super excited to have you on our show today, Aziz. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Excited. Cool, cool. So let's start off by uh, if you could tell the audience that's going to be listening a little bit about yeah, about your role uh, that you're currently doing at Jiffy, what you're working on, and uh, where are you based? Yeah, so you know I'll start off with a bit of um, history and introduction to Jiffy. So Jiffy's been around since 2015. Um, fundamentally, what they are, what we are, is a uh, marketplace for home improvement and maintenance. Um, you know, the, the way that the interaction exists is that through our app or through the website, you can log in and find a trade if you have a need, whether it's a plumber or an electrician or someone to come and look at your roof and fix your roof. You could put that request into our Jiffy app uh, and we'll match you up with a number, uh, you know, with one of, um, you know, many uh, professionals that we've onboarded onto um, our platform. We'll make that connection between the homeowner and the professional. And at that point, um, you know, you'll have a number of conversations, figure out what the scope and timing and details. Uh, they'll come over, do the work, uh, and they'll end up leaving and the payment and um, all that sort of process is handled uh, through the app. So a very familiar marketplace, um, you know, methodology. Um, you know, lots of people describe it as Uber for home maintenance. We like to think it's like it's, it's different because of the type of transaction and the size of the transaction. So that's Jiffy in a nutshell. We're located in four different markets. Toronto is our biggest market, followed by Ottawa and then Boston and Chicago. So uh, we are growing, uh, but Toronto is our biggest marketplace. Um, so like you said, uh, like you mentioned, I do, I, I do manage uh, seven different products. Um, you know, they're sort of comprised of a, an app on the user side uh, or the homeowner side, an app on the professional side. And then we have, you know, equivalent websites for the web apps for the, the homeowner side and a web, web app for the professionals. Uh, and then also an internal facing, um, you know, application where our admins will use that. So that's sort of uh, the scope of, of the things that we will typically consider to be product. Uh, there's lots of teams in the mix. There's an operations team. We have a marketing team. We have a customer service team. Um, you know, within the operations team, we'll have people that are onboarding new professionals. We'll have people that are looking at quality control and just making sure that we're doing all the right things. So there's many teams in the mix, um, you know, in addition to obviously development uh, and, and, and product. So that's sort of the mix of, of everything. Um, you know, my team consists of, of two designers that, um, you know, we sort of work on figuring out what are the right initiatives um, or the things that will help us, you know, increase retention. Uh, and, and, and hit our financial and our, and our business related goals. And, you know, we take that as an outcome and then come up with ideas, research them, 
um, you know, go through a, a design exploration phase and, and, you know, work with all of our stakeholders uh, within, the, within the team to get them built out. So that's nice. a quick snapshot of, uh, of what we are and who I am. Nice, nice. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a big load you have uh, <laughs> uh, to manage with all these different products in, uh, in the works. So that's, uh, that's very exciting. Um, and I know that prior um, to joining Jiffy, you have actually a lot of experience in the enterprise realm. Um, I'm curious to know from your perspective, going from like those large established bureaucratic uh, enterprises at times, uh, what was that adjustment like going from that to a startup um, transition-wise for you? So I've, it's not the first time that I've gone from a, a mature organization to a startup. Um, I started off at TELUS, which was, you know, a mature organization, much bigger, obviously, because I was so young in my career. Uh, my, you know, the things that I was responsible for had a much smaller scope. Uh, at Extreme Labs is, is, you know, that was a startup. We were, I joined when there was about 40 to 50 people. Uh, interestingly enough, coming from an enterprise, my big focus there was working a lot with enterprise and introducing agile and, um, you, know, you know, modern ways of building software. So mm-hmm. I've gone from like the startup um, from, from an enterprise to a startup. And then after Extreme Labs and Pivotal back to Loblaws, back to it, which is an enterprise and then back to, so I've jumped back and forth and, okay. you know, they, they, they all have their uh, interesting points, challenges, whatever you might want to call it, um, you know, going from a large organization to a smaller one. I think the, the key thing that, that, that people will experience is, is obviously having to wear a ton of hats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a ton of roles that you have to play within a smaller, younger organization. Um, whereas in a more established organization, you know, a lot of these roles might already be, um, you know, handed out to others. Uh, and there be, there might be a lot more people at the table. So you know, there's a bigger focus on collaboration and, um, you know, and working with your team and achieving alignment. Whereas in a small organization, you just don't have as many people at the table. Um, so the amount of time that you end up spending, you know, reaching alignment or working with stakeholders is, is much less. I remember coming from Labla to Jiffy, um, you know, I was always surprised at how, how few people I needed to work with in order to get an idea across and convince, because we just had that, you know, nature of like, you know, just talk to a couple of key people and then boom, move faster. Whereas at Loblaw, the, the, the approach would have been, you know, a little more different that there's multiple teams that you have to work through, get, you know, a certain degree of alignment before you're ready to move forward onto the next stage. So, that's perhaps one of the biggest challenges coming from a larger environment um, to a smaller one, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Aside, aside from the ability to make decisions fast and having a smaller group of people to go and um, present to or to get approvals from, what other kind of challenges do you feel like you no longer face in a, being in a startup again? Um, you know, I think... I think there are challenges that we definitely do face being in a startup, um, but like the stuff that we do no longer face, um, you know, I think in large part, it is that, you know, the, there's just like, there's less people around. Um, and there's also another, another issue that you, you'll also end up dealing with is um, in a larger organization, they may not be so used to, you know, pushing out a less than polished V1 of whatever you're trying to build out. And there's a number of reasons for that, right? You'll have, you know, a lot of leaders that have, uh, you know, been around for a while. They're very proud of the brand, and therefore they have, 
extremely high standards, not to say that people in startups don't have high standards, they just, you know, they just maybe think about it in a slightly different way of um, how you button up and have perfection. Um, you know, I, I think the other challenge that you get within a, in a larger organization um, stems from this sort of stage gate mentality, right, where a lot of traditional projects or traditional organizations will run projects in a stage gate uh, approach. And in that approach, you know, I feel that people people feel they have one shot to get it right, right? Because once you're done, you're past that gate, you're past that build gate, you're going to launch, then you get into this warranty gate, and then you've got to go and do something else. So um, oftentimes people will get stuck in that. Um, you know, they'll push extra hard to try to make sure that every feature that they need is part of V1. And that actually ends up being a pretty painful source of scope creep, in my opinion. So that's the second reason that you've got people that are so used to a stage gate mentality that they don't understand that that's, you know, that V1 is really just a V1 and that you're going to have many more opportunities to go at it. I think a third piece that, you know, you might encounter at a larger organization that you don't at a smaller organization is that oftentimes, depending on the organizational structure that you have, you might have people that are more geared towards a checklist mentality, right? So we've shipped the project, all right, on to the next thing on the roadmap. So those are probably three big differences that, you know, I don't see anymore coming from a large organization to a smaller one. It's, and, um, you know, and I think if I were to add a fourth, I think one of the things that we, uh, it's easier to appreciate when you're a smaller team is that software is complicated. It's not straightforward. So, you know, sometimes you may have a best guess estimate as to how long something might take, and that may not work out to what your original plan was. You know, in a larger organization, there's a lot more emphasis on accountability to timelines. Um, whereas I think in a smaller organization where you understand that there's a give and take, that you understand that, you know, getting over and, and you know, doing it in a way that allow you to learn is the most important thing. Um, whereas, you know, I don't think that that necessarily is the sole focus, um, you know, in a larger organization because they have different frameworks by which to, to evaluate things. So those are a number of different things that I feel like I don't have to deal with as much uh, in a smaller org. No, it's interesting. I, uh, we have a, a few enterprise clients and I can definitely relate to that part about the stage gate thing. Got to get a perfect once going through UAT for like months. Mm -hmm. um, checklist, checklist, checklist. Right. Um, I just feel like in many ways, uh, enterprises can never truly be like under the real agile approach. Like they think they might think that they're agile, but they're just totally all everything's waterfall. Mm -hmm. um, in your experience, have you actually worked in an enterprise where they actually run on a true agile methodology where like you don't know what you're building in two, three weeks, you kind of go at it kind of iteratively. like there. Yeah, sure. There's a roadmap, but like you shouldn't have requirements for some things four months out. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like, I think on one end, you've got the extreme agile where you don't really know what you're building in the next two to three weeks. Um, you know, on the other end, you've got everything that's written up and decided upon, you know, and sitting on the shelf for a year. And when, you know, or large organizations say they're doing agile, they're somewhere in the middle. Exactly. They're, they're using the process, but they're not necessarily, you know, they've kind of got a lot of stuff figured out up front. Um, so I, so yeah, I've, I've not been part of an enterprise that's sort of figured that out. Uh, you know, in large part, you've got a lot of people there who are in different roles, uh, strategy roles, their whole, their whole job 
is to sort of think about, you know, what's next, what, you know, and not only like what's next month or next, you know, quarter, it's like, what's, you know, next year or what's two years out. So you've always got people that are thinking about this, you know, people that have ideas, um, there's, you know, external influences with competitors and so on. So there's always a list of things that you need to do. Um, and depending on the type of structure that you are within, an, uh, you know, a larger organization, um, you know, if you've got external teams that are dependent on you, then there's going to be even more uh, demand on, you know, on your time. And therefore, and demand comes in the, in, in the way of like, hey, I need you to do this for me. So the lists or the, or the, 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 or the asks, not, not necessarily requirements, but the asks of like, you know, to help out another team, I think those just continue to grow. And that's one of the things that makes it hard for, um, you know, an enterprise to be uh, truly agile. So what I've usually seen is they adopt a lot of the processes, a lot of the rituals, but mm -hmm. they'll tend to lean more towards having, you know, baked in um, uh, projects. You know, the other piece that I always think about is there, there are a lot of people in, in a larger, you know, organization. Um, and so it kind of makes it hard for you to move that fast to figure out, you know, within two or three weeks, what you're going to do next from the start all the way to the, fin you know, to the end. Um, the start being understanding what the problem is, framing the problem, going through a design, uh, you know, you know, doing a few tests and then coming up with the requirements to be able to build. I think when you have a lot of people at the table, especially when they're external teams, you gotta, you gotta take the time to work through it with them, make sure that they have an opportunity to provide feedback. Uh, and sometimes that can take time, right? Because it's not a single focus for the enterprise they often have a hundred thousand things going on at the same time. So naturally there's a lot of stuff. Each of it's all sort of inching along and that ends up slowing down your project. So that, that's another reason why I think things go a little slower and makes it harder for you to be truly agile in that sense. And I, I fair enough. I just, it's always a, it's always a tough thing to go against. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> With your experience that you know you have now with Jiffy more recently, is there anything, <coughs> sorry, is there any any lesson takeaway that you've found that is really pushing the needle? That if you ever were to go back to an enterprise, that you would want to deploy? Yeah, I. So one of the things that I've loved about it, um, you know, going back to what what I said before about wearing many hats, um, you know, one of the hats that I end up wearing at Jiffy is, uh, you know, being really deep in our analytics, right? So, you know, at Loblaw or at TELUS or, or wherever, we would have had a separate team of people that were running the reports on your data warehouse and you sort of give them a request, they come back with a report. We don't have that, that you know, we're not that size yet. So someone's got to do that. That's, you know, I've taken on that responsibility mm -hmm. and I love doing that because it allows me to get back into the data you know, refresh some of my technical skills. And I think that's been really strong because that's given me another way to sort of, you know, justify a lot of arguments uh, and, and firsthand access to that data. So if I were to go back to an enterprise, I think that's one of the key things that I would take with me. The, the you know, the sort of the insistence that my product team, it, you know, has access to the data that they're living in those data tools, whether it's, you know, down to like, you know, our data platform or like something like Mixpanel that you're looking in there either to like figure out, to frame a problem, um, to give context to a problem, to validate that a problem exists, but then also just sort of like looking at, you know, those sources to make sure that your, that your product is humming along, that it's performing as you, as you expected. So that would be a huge mm -hmm. thing. I think the other piece that, uh, you know, that's been great at, at Jiffy is um, 
you know, the exposure to the fundamentals of the business. Um, and obviously that's easier with a smaller organization because the business model tends to be, you know, um, a little simpler when you're, when you're earlier on in your life. Um, but the fact that, uh, you know, so close to that, uh, so close to the PL allows me to frame the, the work that I'm doing in, in that light. So if I were to go back to an, an enterprise or if anyone is actually considering going back to an enterprise, I think that's an important component. Like how close are you going to be to the business fundamentals? Do you have access to them? You know, are they sort of what your, your metrics are? Are they, are they, are those what your goals are? Um, because I think that gives you an, like a, a, an amazing degree of focus. Uh, and if you don't have those, you're just really not sure exactly. It's kind of it becomes vague as to what, what it is that you're supposed to be working on. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, I want to talk about this because I think it's super critical and you brought it up before uh, in a conversation that we had that you think that, you know, a product role over the next couple of years, hopefully sooner, is really going to evolve um, where product managers are going to be like more like general managers, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? They have expanded responsibilities. They have more insight control over the PNL. Um, can you, let's talk about that a bit more uh, because I think it, it's so critical for PMs to have this visibility um, in order to make better decisions and better, better hires um, or, or the, whatever it is on the product side. Mm -hmm. And I just don't feel that they're really taking any full advantage of that right now. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think it could unlock for them if they had this type of visibility? So I guess for me first, that what that visibility means is, you know, there's a core set of metrics that you sort of operate your business on. Could, you know, you could think about things like revenue, GMV, um, you know, margin, uh, customer acquisition cost, ac you know, acquisition, uh, retention, those, I mean, maybe, maybe those two last two are more product metrics, but um, I, like, I think that group of metrics typically rolls up into a PNL. Um, and I think, you know, at an organization, a person that is accountable for those metrics um, will typically also have some degree of control or some degree of levers to affect change to control those metrics. So like if you're responsible for revenue, you will also have the authority to do things in order to hit your revenue goal. Um, and so, you know, when we think about the, the, the idea of, of the product team, product managers or product designers, as you want to think about it, um, you know, I think the sweet spot is when, you know, a person like that is accountable for those metrics, but also has the levers to make those changes, right? And that is their focus. And again, it goes back to what I was saying before that, you know, like, let's say if my accountability was, um, you know, revenue, which, you know, in, in our business, we'll have GMV, which is what you know, a, uh, a customer might be charged at the end of a job. And then our revenue is sort of our, our portion of, of that, um, that total. So if my goal is to increase revenue, then I'm looking at all the ways in which I can increase that, that part of the take. Um, so, you know, and if that's, if that's what I'm accountable for, and I have a team, you know, that I work with on that, maybe the accountability spread across them as well, uh, you know, uh, through some incentive program, it allows me to sort of focus on that goal and to think about what are the solutions I can take or we can think of to actually hit that goal. So if we need to double the revenue or, or you know, you know, raise it by 10% in the quarter, we can prioritize a list of, in, you know, uh, ideas or experiments or initiatives that we think are going to hit that. 
and then go and work on that. And the outcome of that is directly on me or on the team um, that if we don't hit it, you know, you've got to be able to answer as to why. And if you do, you're celebrated for it. So, and I think that part is kind of missing. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of PM roles, PM organizations where you don't necessarily have that accountability. So it doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, if you miss that number, um, you know, what's, what's the downside, right? So there's no, there's no real incentive to want to get uh, people to hit that number. So I think that's, that's piece number one. And I think that just brings it like an unparalleled degree of focus to the role and clarity to the role, right? Otherwise it's not really sure, like what is your outcome? You know, a lot of times when we talk about outcome driven product development, uh, you need to be able to identify what that outcome is. And if you can ladder it up to your accountability, which might be something like revenue, then I think your outcomes become super, super clear. Uh, it's, I think it's, you're a hundred percent right. And I think hopefully more and more companies will listen to this recording and understand that <laughs> they need to do these type of things in order for their teams and their PMs to be actually successful in their jobs. Mm -hmm. Now on that point, what should PMs like start preparing for? What new skills or tradecraft should they pick up in order to be set up for success in this type of role? Because like, you know, when I, when I look at RPNL, like I need to have a bit of a financial understanding, like, okay, like how does this work? <coughs> how do I create financial modeling around something like this? Uh, what would you recommend for PMs who are going to be listening on what they should uh, start studying or learning in order to be successful? Yeah, I think a big part of that is what you said, financial modeling, um, you know, just understanding the components of, you know, a P&L, um, you know, basic, basic accounting, um, and just, you know, understand what, a, you know, a, how a GM operates a business. And, the, and I think the best place to look at that is within your own organization. There's, you know, someone who's accountable for, for that today you know, I'd be surprised if they wouldn't be overly excited to share that knowledge with, with someone that, that expresses an interest. So there's an easy way to go about learning about it too, which is with, within your own organization. But I think like, uh, you know, being able to understand uh, a PL, um, the components that go into it, um, how to model, um, how to project, how to forecast, because that's, that's, that's another part of it that you can, you know, looking back, you can see how your business has performed but you're also going to have to use that information to sort of project forward uh, how the business might also perform in sort of coming up with your own goals that, that you're accountable for. Right. Um, so I think modeling is a huge part. Um, you know, I think the other piece is, is general day-to-day -day business management. Like if you are in a GM role um, you know, I think some of the more common type of PM product management responsibilities might shift away from you, right? Like, you know, the, maybe the backlog management goes somewhere else if you're focused on the PL. Um, so, and, and because you are sort of that accountable person, you're gonna end up having people that are looking at you as more of a leader um, in, that, in that role. So it almost becomes like team management, people management, like people relationship building. So that's another big thing that if you feel like you're not quite there yet, like that's another piece to focus on. Um, and, and uh, to, to beef up there. I think the last piece that I would say is probably strategy, right? As a GM, as a business owner, you know, a big part of what you're looking at is like, what are your competitors doing? You know, how, what's the health of your business? What is it going to be like? Um, and if, you know, if you are a, a product manager or a product designer that's sort of focused on a quarterly roadmap or a yearly roadmap, you're not necessarily thinking that far out. 
um, you know, that you might have a few exercises where you do start to dream up the future, but I think like strategy is a huge piece as well. Like how do you beef that up and what goes into thinking about a strategy? Like what, what are some of the tools or the ways in which people compare, uh, you know, other competing um, products that are out there? Uh, so I think those are three big things that, that PMs today could, you know, can always continue to beef up on. Yeah. This might be a counterintuitive question to what we're trying to like get to that would happen one day, but what do you think it, it hasn't happened yet? Like what are, are there any drawbacks to this approach that uh, can provide a negative experience in any shape or form? I mean, I, th- I don't, the reason I don't think it's happened today is because I just don't um, like, I think the people that are in those leadership positions, I mean, you got to remember, like, you know, when I, when I was at TELUS, you know, and I wanted to become a product manager, I was told you can't cause you don't have an MBA. Like that was the stat, that was the state of product management then, right? Like right. now things are very different, you know, not to take away from anyone that, that worked at, at TELUS. But um, that was the state of things then. Um, and so I think that the leaders that, you know, are now, um, you know, reforming these, these digital organizations that are having a huge impact on um, organizational design and accountabilities are not necessarily people that have practiced in the, the form of product management that we, we've sort of known over the last 10 years. So, you don't, I, so I think a lot of the leaders just don't, don't understand the potential or they haven't seen the potential or they haven't bought into that idea that, you know, um, sort of combining some degree of PL ownership strategy and, you know, you know, product and technical execution is a real sweet spot uh, and can have a lot of benefits. So I think that's the reason why it hasn't happened. I think one of the drawbacks is if you put someone in that role, um, even if you have the foresight is because this is relatively new, you're kind of throwing a PM into the deep end. So where does that PM go for mentorship, right? Like who's mm-hmm. actually done this before? Uh, you know, I, when I look down to the U.S., I, you know, I see and I talk to, you know, people in the, just as an example, the U.S., I'm sure it's happening, uh, you know, in a lot of places, but you do tend to see that, uh, that t- type of a description for a product role where it has some more GM or P&L um, ownership. So I think one of the drawbacks early in Canada for the first group of people that go into that would be, you know, the lack of mentorship or who you can lean on. Um, I think though, the digital native organizations in Canada, they will be more, uh, you know, apt to, to sort of adopt this approach. So like, you know, I think you could think of things like the Shopify's of the world, um, oh, there's not of the world, there's not too many of them, um, you know, but like Shopify, for example, I'm sure like they have, uh, their focus is a lot more on product, um, you know, only having that accountability on how their entire platform is doing. So eventually you'll end up having leaders that spread across the Canadian tech scene, the Canadian business scene that have that experience and the ability to mentor. But right now that's probably a gap. Yeah. yeah. Just, I think you hit it uh, spot on. Um, there's just so much more experience, I think, in the U.S. market and in, in companies that like when I think about what companies like Shopify, okay, maybe is like a forward thinking company that's in Canada. And then there's a few others, obviously, but yeah, that gap of knowledge, I think, is like profound. And there's more and more people coming from the U.S. now to Canada. So we're starting to get that knowledge, to, you know, come into the market, which is great. But yeah, you're right. The mentorship side is a bit small in Canada mm-hmm. right now at that type of level. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when we had a chance to 
chat last time, you were talking about um, the number of user research studies that you did. Um, I found that to be really interesting because not not a lot of companies that I speak to do do this actually, or they do it, but they don't do it well. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you were really proud of it. Um, can you kind of walk us through some of uh, the types of studies that you did? Um, you know, who was involved on your end? and the general process that, uh, that you took? Yeah, so we're, I mean, I'm really proud of that part. We've run about uh, 10 user studies in the last year and that's starting from, you know, a very, very early stage where, you know, prior to, to my time, you know, we may have run a few, but I think we've really picked up and we've really built up that, that muscle. Um, so, you know, one of the ones that, the biggest study that we ran that I'm really proud of was a jobs to be done study. Um, so, now, this is the idea that you're trying to figure out that there's some fundamental reason why a customer uses your product, hires your product, right? There's some need that they're trying to fulfill. Um, so, you know, I started that off at Loblaw, uh, you know, reading up on the framework, understanding it, and we ran a study there. It just didn't work out quite as I had hoped. Um, we just didn't execute it in the right way. So, you know, I had that sort of chip coming into to Jiffy. So that was one part of the motivation, but I'd really bought into that framework of being able to like, you know, understand or being able to express why or how, why people ch uh, choose um, your product or, or maybe not. So we ended up running this jobs to be done study, which basically involves three rounds, in my opinion. The first is a qualitative, um, you know, research phase where you meet with 10 to 15 customers an hour long call um, and you try to discover what's called the job map. And these are the steps that a customer would take as they're going through and completing a job. You know, typically we would know this as like a, you know, a customer or user journey, right? So nothing too shocking there, but what it allows you to do is validate the model that you have with actual customers and just make sure that you've got all the steps correct. The step, the second step is a quantitative step, which is to list out, um, you know, all of the steps in your, in your job map and to understand which ones um, have a, a high degree of important, uh, importance and a high degree of satisfaction. So we're actually asking two questions, like how, how important is this step for you and how satisfied are you with this step? Um, and even within each step, there's these things called desired outcome statements. So for instance, when it's, you know, when, when I'm, um, what's a good example when a job is being wrapped up like let's say i have a painter that's you know painting a room so when the job is done it's really important to me that i have you know the the, the painter walk me through and just show me that everything has been done to my satisfaction right um, so that's a step within that sort of finalize the job part of the job map right it would be um, you know the desired outcome is i want to have a walkthrough so that I can be sure that the job has been done correctly. And so what we'll ask is how important is that step and how satisfied are you with that step? And we'll do that for a number of different outcomes um, you know, across the entire job map. So it's a pretty intensive um, you know, a quantitative study that we, that we launched. So what that quant study does is actually helps you identify areas that are of high importance and low satisfaction, right? And the idea is that, okay, these are, these are areas that are high, satis high importance and low satisfaction, then that's a gap. That's something that you can improve on, right? Um, and so with those areas identified, what we can then do is do a final round of qual studies where we can meet with a number of customers, focus in on those areas instead of a giant map 
it's just maybe two or three opportunities and learn a bit more about, you know, where they're struggling um, and how we can improve things. So that was a study that we ran. It took us, you know, a good couple of months between the three phases. Uh, the team learned a ton, you know, typically with, with a larger organization, you would bring in an external consultancy to help you understand the framework and maybe execute it. We just had materials that we found on, you know, on the net and just sort of read through it and, and uh, stumbled along. But I think what we got out of it was pretty good. You know, I think we found some pretty interesting insights. Um, the, biggest, the biggest insight that we're actually working on now um, is that we found that, um, you know, some customers, um, they'll find that there's a surprise on the day of, and that that's like a, you know, that's a time of, or that's a period of low satisfaction that, you know, when there's something unexpected that happens on the day of. Mm -hmm. um, and so the way that that originates, here's an example. For instance, if you've got someone to come and mount a TV on your wall, you might have uh, not gone through the, to the process of like making sure that the TV and the mount that you purchased are compatible. So now when the professional comes over, tries to do it and says, ah, this is not, these don't work together. And now all of a sudden the homeowner's upset and the professional's got nothing to do. And, you know, they're upset because they've, you know, so, so how do you avoid that? Right. And so when we dug into it, we find that, you know, customers, they're not really sure what the right questions are to ask. They don't know that, you know, that like a mount needs to fit a TV. They're just buying a mount and they have a TV. Right. So, um, so they don't ask those questions and a professional is often very busy and like probably doesn't have time to, to ask those questions of every customer. So perfect opportunity when we, when we have that insight to see that, you know, technology can actually solve that problem. And so what we're trying to do is like, you know, for each of the services that we offer, we're trying to figure out what are one to two questions that we can ask the customer, the system can ask the customer that will remove any of these surprises, you know, on the day of the job. So that's one of the benefits that came out of the, um, the jobs to be done study. So we're really happy with that. I think the benefit, the other thing is that we've got this job map. We've got like importance and satisfaction scores. Theoretically, we can go back in a year, run it again and see if, if that has moved and see if we've made a, uh, an improvement. Um, more recently, what we've started doing, which we didn't do as much early on is focusing more on usability studies. So we found a great tool. Uh, it's called Maze.co. Uh, um, and what it allows you to do is embed a prototype, a clickable prototype, but you know, interleave it with a number of survey questions. So now all of a sudden, from a remote perspective, now that we're you know, living in the situations that we are, um, you, know, you can send out a prototype with a bunch of survey questions and sort of see someone going through, not necessarily a recording, but you could see someone go through your prototype. You can ask them questions about that prototype, things that you would have done in like a user testing.com type of tool. So yeah. um, in, we, we never really focused on that before because we were looking at sort of the user testing type of tool, but this is, this is a, you know, a different approach. It's remote. The, the price points are very different. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely more helpful. And the way it's changed our approach is, early on in our design process, we'll do some, you know, early stage mock-ups, some, some uh, um, you know, some inspirational mock-ups or some uh, concept mocks, that's what we'll call them. So we've got those anyways, why not just put them into a prototype and just see what customers feel? You might, you might learn something um, and which might actually help with any of the discussions internally with any of the stakeholders you have. So two examples, like we've done the big jobs to be done. And now what we're focusing on a lot is, you know, the, um, uh, the usability tests uh, early on in our design phase. That's uh, 
I'm I'm really I'm really impressed that you managed to get through these because they are I know how time consuming they are uh, mm. to do from start to end. Um, is with everything that you've gone through now, is there any learnings takeaways that um, if you were to do it again, you would do it differently? Yeah, I think for me the, the like a big change. Like I would I wish I would have figured out or learned about this usability approach um, or the tool rather earlier on. Like we mm. knew about usability testing, but if we had spent more time focusing on that component earlier on, um, you know, we, we we're recently we're testing out another feature right now, which allows customers to specify that they're flexible with their dates. You know, kind of you think about like when you're booking a flight, right? Yeah. You, you choose a date, and there's usually a toggle field that says if you're flexible, we'll look for prices adjacent to the date that you've picked. So, similar type of idea. Um, and we, we had an idea of what this design could look like and, you know, just randomly threw it up on this tool and learned that people were, you know, hella confused as to, you know, with what we put out there. So, and we've completely revamped it. The project has changed. It's, we've actually simplified it from an, uh, from a build perspective, what we actually have to build. And I think it's actually a lot more clear. And it's all because we took that approach of putting something in front of the customer and having them react to them. I think, you know, a lot of people might hear this and be like, well, that's 101 stuff. Like you should be doing that. And that's totally true. And I think going back, that's something that I wish I had remembered. Um, so now what we're thinking is going forward with, you know, whenever we're at a point where we feel comfortable with a concept design, we want to put that in front of a customer and just have them react to it and make that sort of the central, a central part of the, the, the debate in, you know, how we go forward with a, with a project. And Going forward, now that you've done a few of these now, um, is there any ways to scale these things out at um, for an organization? Or is it like still very process or manual in certain aspects? Uh, or are there tools out there like Maze or you know other ones that you feel can maybe do a lot of like heavy grunt work for you these days? I think, I think a tool like Maze helps you like set it up fairly easily. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of work that goes into um, building a prototype and you, you, sometimes people will try to load it up onto a phone or like, you know, if it's a mobile app doing over like usertesting.com, I think it's a little more difficult. So a tool like Maze makes it easier. Um, I've always been a fan of having product designers, um, you know, run their own tests. You know, there's, there, I think there's some good debate on whether people should be doing that or not, whether you should have a separate researcher I think it helps designers build empathy and to truly deeply understand the problem at hand. So, you know, when you're talking about scale, to me, scale comes from like, you know, is there a narrow pipeline of these tests that you can run to like empowering every designer to be able to run their own and scale that way? Right. Cause yeah. I mean, if you want to go even further than that, then you're talking about like a ratio of tests um, or studies to designer. And then like, you know, realistically, how many can you run in parallel? And I think, mm -hmm. you know, you're probably close to max out to like one per designer if, you know, if, if everything is running super smoothly. So I think that's, that's good scale in my opinion, um, at least in terms of like, you know, usability testing or like research. Um, I mean, there's obviously the other side of it, which is experimentation, A-B testing and the like. I mean, you could set up a whole bunch of those and just let them run. And a tool obviously helps you scale that out. So there's, you know, there's a lot of different um, 
uh, theories and approaches on that. But as far as like customer research, ethnographic or usability, um, I think, you know, the, the ideal state is getting your, your design team comfortable so that they're running it on their own. And you have experience now managing both designers and PMs. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what kind of information do you regularly share with the design team in order for them to see viability or, you know, an understanding of like what it is that they're doing that is successful? You know, I think, um, so for me, the, the thing I always say is context is king, right? So if you don't have context, you're not, you, you don't know what, how to make the right decision. That could be in a large enterprise setting where you're not in the room where certain debates are happening. And so you don't, you don't know the motivation when someone comes back and says, this is kind of what we have to do, or this is the way it's got to be. Um, or maybe you don't have the numbers um, or access to the to the um, the analytics or the data, and therefore again you can't rationalize for yourself why it is that you're trying to do what you're trying to do. So for me, the way in which I'm you know coaching designers as well as product managers, and I'll get to the way I do it slightly differently, but um, co- the way I coach designers and product managers is provide as much context as possible, be an open book, share all the data that you can try to bring them into every conversation where it's feasible without like, you know, um, you know, without stretching them and obviously breaking things like, you know, air towards asking them, do you want to be involved in this? And, and like, you know, create an environment where they're like, nah, I'm okay. I've got, I've got enough on my plate rather than like assuming that, you know, they're probably too busy and I don't need to. So I think providing as much information as you can, you know, in our day, in our PM, in our afternoon standups, um, we do a daily standup now that we're um, remote just to have a touch point. We have one in the morning at around 10 and one at 4.30. You know, oftentimes I'll just pull up Nick's panel and I'll show them, hey, look, this is a cool thing that I was looking at. And I think they appreciate the fact that I'm showing them how to go through it. Um, so just, you know, try to sh- show them the, those data tools and say when they're going through a, a uh, you know, a, a design themselves, they need the data. It's like, you guys have an account. This is how you can pull the data yourselves. If you need, I'm here to help and here to support you. So I think enabling designers, giving them context, um, that's super key, right? Um, it's sort of the teaching a person to fish mentality. Um, for, for product managers, uh, I think a lot of that stuff still, still goes. I think with product managers, depending on how your organization is set up, you may have more stakeholder management or different le- different levels of stakeholder management. So that's definitely a huge part. Presentation skills are a huge part. Storytelling is a huge part. Um, you know, especially at a company like Loblaw, that was a big part of what we had to do is make sure that we tell the story in the right way. Um, and then I think like in general for a product manager, I think that the main, like a big goal or a big part of your role is framing a problem, right? Like, it's not necessarily you that needs to come up with the solution, but you need to be able to frame the problem. And again, goes back to that context idea, provide enough information that so, so that the people that are working alongside of you can come up with those right set of ideas. So you're, you're the ultimate, you're an enabler, you know, as a, as a product manager. So that's kind of like the slight difference. Uh, and then I think coming out of Jiffy, I think another piece that I'm probably pushing more on, on product management but also on design, but to a, you know, to a lesser degree is like getting into that data. Like you got to be able to like pull all your stuff, you know, start to learn SQL, right? Like 
be able to like pull stuff out of the, the data warehouse if you can, if you have access to that. So those are a few differences that I, that I, that I would highlight. No, that's great. Um, all really, really good points. Um, uh, last question for you, uh, um, Aziz, um, where do you turn to when you need to go make tough decisions? Like where do you look for inspiration, advice, mentorship, guidance? When you come across a situation like I'm stumped, I don't yeah. know what to do. I mean, I think, I think you have to be able to, so I, I bounce between a couple of things. One definitely is like, if it's a product related decision, you need to be able to go and dig out the data that you, that you want. There's a double-edged sword of like spending too much time going in at it on your own and not sharing where you're at. Um, mm. because there may be a, a different perspective which, with which people look at it. So oftentimes with, uh, with my CEO, Ryan, I'll come to him with like an interesting mm -hmm. problem and, you know, a way that I've tried to model the data. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's amazing with, with data analytics. So he can immediately just sort of see that that's, that the, the analysis is maybe I'm not looking at it in the right way. And so there's value in going at it early because I get that feedback cycle closed faster and so that helps me sort of, you know, get more of those feedback cycles in. So I think at the end of it, you got to go dig, get the data yourselves, yourself, get a bunch of feedback, um, you know, not only from your leaders, but also from stakeholders, like going across and saying, hey, this is something that we're thinking about, um, you know, how would it, it, how would it affect your life? Um, you know, oftentimes if it's, a, if it's a feature that we're trying to turn down or if it's a feature that we're not going to build, um, you know, I think going through and talking to, to, to the affected people or the affected team to understand how is this going to impact your your day-to-day -day life and spending some time trying to figure out how can you solve that problem for them in a slightly different way so i think coming at it trying to come at it from multiple different angles instead of just like just shutting it down um, and then just saying sorry we're not going to go down that path um, and i think fundamentally a lot of times people want to be heard they just want to have an opportunity to share their perspective on a problem um, and it's fine for you to say that, look, I've looked at it, here's my rationale. And at this point, we're not going to go forward with this, with this project or this solution as we've imagined it, but look, I'm, you know, we've thought through how we can solve it for you in another different way, or, you know, we can come back to it. We can revisit this problem, um, you know, launch what we've got or what we've planned, see if it makes a difference and then come back to it a little later on if, um, you know, if it warrants. So those are probably a couple of ideas that I would take. Um, you know, there's no silver bullet approach to like solving all these problems, but that's probably, you know, the approach I'd start with anyways. Super, super. Aziz, it's, uh, was awesome having you on our show. I mean, thank you so much for all your insights. Uh, I, I learned a lot actually. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, thank you and, um, for giving us some time today. No, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun and it's good to always, you know, look back and think back at the transition and I hope people find this uh, useful. Cool, cool. And for everybody listening uh, on the show, thank you so much for participating and giving us some time as well and uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Until next time. Mm -hmm.